I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. MSW Media. Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans One rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich, and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, today's show is the recording of our live show at the Hey Adams uh, with uh, guest Glenn Kirshner, in which we're breaking down uh, the fantastic sanctions ruling coming out of Michigan. That means it's up to me by myself to give a shout out to our new patrons and also because it's the end of the month, our Hall of Famers. So our new patrons, big honkin' AG fanboy. Yeah, me too. Janet K. Van Etten, Kicker Mike. And, you know, as Rich, Rich Eisen would say, kickers are people too, right? Katie H., Gene Wilson, Lisa Moore, Scott Gregus, Jim Stover, Madison Oberg, Chia Runqua. Hope I said that correctly. Kate, Caleb Bullock, Derek Lee Ein, Tucker Farman, Deborah Sullivan, Wendy Vischer, and Marin Fraley. Thank you all so much. If you want to get a shout out when you sign up, that's patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod, A-I-S-L-E 45 P-O-D. And uh, give us a fucking episode. We'll, we'll shout out your name. Now, if you want to be part of our Hall of Fame and, you know, what what do you get from uh, from from being a patron? Well, you got to be in this audience here. You will get the bonus Q&A that we did after the show. And you'll get uh, our monthly hangouts. We get all sorts of great stuff. Uh, we, we try and take care of you. So if you love the show, that's a great way to show that you support it and want us to continue. So our Hall of Famers, and uh, we couldn't do this without you. Jamil Chohan. 
Christopher Dalpy, dude. Stephen Mackinnon, Jessica Oudbeer, Lance Buckley, Crimer, no criming. David in Brooklyn, all these people taking horse dewormer are just trying to remain in stable condition. Frextiverstiffery, that's the way those characters pronounce, I think. Edit Wikipedia, yes, you two can contribute to the world's foremost source of free knowledge and maybe get sued by a quack. <laughs> Medicon 7 has a pot for pins and a pot for beans. Charles Jones, Chris Waltrip, January 20th, baby, Patty B, Mitchell, and Chris Simpson. And again, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. Now, uh, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 33 of Clean Up on Al 45. I'm your host, Allison Gill, and with me, as always, is real-life lawyer and good friend, Andrew Torres. Hello, Andrew. Well, hello. So, we are live from the Hey Adams Hotel in Washington, D.C. We're here with a room full of our patrons, so, you know, you could make some noise, prove that we're... <laughs> Thank you. Good, good work. Yes, and also joining us today, the host of Justice Matters and Advocate for Accountability, really, and Justice. Please welcome Glenn Kirshner. Okay. Now, Glenn, <laughs> part of accountability and justice following the 2020 election, in particular, um, is the subject of our show today. Holding accountable the lawyers who abused the legal system to perpetuate the big lie. Um, and this reminds me of a case that you and I talked about before, came out of the Mueller investigation against a Russian entity that ran the IRA, Internet Research Agency, troll farm called Concord Management. Remember these guys? Um, they run by Oleg Deripaska, who Manafort mm -hmm. supplied campaign data to via Russian agent, Konstantin Kalimnik. And Concord Management hired a team of American lawyers went through the court process to file discovery motions where they asked for all of our spy craft and sources and methods going back to World War II. And they actually took some of the discovery in the case and f falsified it and then claimed they were able to hack the Mueller investigation. And that's the kind of abuse of the American court system uh, that we saw in the weeks and months after the 2020 election. Tell us why it's so important to hold these lawyers accountable for their bad faith abuse of the judicial system. Yeah, so AG, one of the problems is when we indict people who are overseas and beyond our reach, right? They're in countries with whom we have no extradition agreements. We kind of do that at our own peril, right? We, we know we're never going to get them, or it's very unlikely we're going to get them in American courts to try them. However, while the case is live on a judge's docket, the prosecutors have responsibilities to, for example, give over discovery stuff that you know we may typically hold very close to the vest uh, unless and until it's time to give it over to a defendant so they can begin preparing for trial. So listen, I applauded my former boss, Chief of Homicide, Bob Mueller, for going aggressively after um, the Russian Internet Agency, but it became apparent that we had everything to lose and nothing to gain because we were never going to be able to haul anybody into court. So it was going to be a one-way street of us providing them information, and there was nothing in it for us. So, and yes, that's one example of when you have lawyers who begin to mess with the system. 
And we have seen lawyers messing with the system like Rudy Giuliani. I hesitate to even call him a lawyer. Um, <laughs> well, DC and New York don't. Yeah, well, yeah, I, that's, that's still pending. I understand he's, he's doing well now as a spokesman for Clairol hair dye, but he, um, that <laughs> no, was a cheap joke, right? Don't, don't drag Clairol into this. That's the good stuff. <laughs> But, but, you know, it's, it's so important that we hold these lawyers accountable for debasing, for abusing the, the court system for nefarious purposes. And I know AG is going to get into the Michigan opinion from Judge Parker that just eviscerated, disemboweled nine lawyers, the Kraken lady and eight others. And I, <laughs> I don't want to jump ahead of the agenda here, but, you know, holding lawyers accountable for nefarious lawyering, not poor lawyering, believe me. Plenty of poor lawyering out there, <laughs> but nefarious lawyering is a whole nother thing. And we've seen an explosion of it in the Trump years. And I'm glad we have some judges who are standing up to it. Yeah, I think I think that's really, really well said. Um, a couple of questions. I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind is when I was following the Concord cases, it is the first time in in my memory that I can recall a case sort of unfolding in that direction, right? Where you had <clears throat> signals coming from the bench with respect to ongoing discovery obligations, right? Because as you talk about discovery, um, it, it's even more crucial in the prosecution context, right? Like you, we've talked about Brady evidence on the show and that sort of thing, right? It, it, this is the first case I have ever seen where the judge kind of signaled from the bench, Hey, this might be you know th this might be an abuse of the process itself. I don't I don't know if you've ever seen that before. N not often. I, I, yeah. I will say there is also a trend which um, I have mixed feelings about, <laughs> and it's interventionist judges. Judges right up the street in in my backyard, the the federal district court in Washington D.C. are becoming very vocal about how prosecutors. Let me, let, me, let me pause here. We have 60 federal prosecutors assigned to the insurrection case. And those are my friends and my former colleagues. Many of them came up through my homicide section at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I know the kind of work they do. I would trust them to handle cases. I would trust them to babysit my grandchild. That's how much trust I have in them. The judges are now weighing in on the prosecutorial decisions they're making. Why aren't you insisting on higher fines. Why are you letting these cases go so cheap? That is a sea change in judging. Frankly, anytime a judge weighed in on a prosecutorial decision, in my experience, it's why are you going so hard on these defendants? If ever they weighed in, that's the way they typically weighed in. We are seeing a whole new breed of interventionist judges. And I think because the judiciary is the one branch of government, notwithstanding Trump and McConnell's best efforts to soil the federal bench with not qualified judges, um, it's the one branch of government that has held fast and held strong. It saved us on the election front. Um, I don't know if it's going to do well on the voter suppression front. That's a different question. But the judiciary has, by and large, remained strong. And thank goodness, or we would be in a very different place right now. I, I love hearing another optimist about <laughs> the state of the judiciary. We had a lot of Justins and Corys on the bench that, that were, you know, crammed on in the, in the last four years. Um, the the I, I thought your point was really, really well taken. And my leading question to you would be, I have ne we, we opening arguments actually filed an amicus brief in the Michael Flynn case. 
Um, and it seems to me that if anything would be the switch that would turn the the types of judges who are on the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, right? Solemn response. Uh, uh, I'm thinking my former partner, uh, Amit Mehta, right, for example. Um, not not a bomb thrower, right? Not a not a radical, uh, but somebody to to sort of look back and go, all right, maybe there need there needs to be some sort of institutional checks on the system. The Flynn case. It's hard to think of you know a fish that stinks more than than the Flynn case. And I smiled know? when you said Amit Mehta, who yeah. actually came up. He really made his bones as a local public defender in in the courts of Washington D.C. And when you talk about Flynn, I I wince. Because I was in court when Judge Emmett Sullivan, who I, tr I tried cases before, Me he too. is a lion uh, and he is fiercely independent. When he <laughs> said, you know, sir, you disgraced everything this flag stood for. You arguably sold out your country. And I got patriotic goosebumps for <laughs> real. I mean, they rose on me. And I thought, okay, this is what a judge is supposed to be. And then look where we ended up. Yeah. Look at what Bill Barr forced the Department of Justice to do, to debase itself, to do a favor, though, for one of Donald Trump's criminal associates, Mike Flynn. But I think his day is still coming. I really do. And I hope it is. Although I will say, you know, Sullivan um, kind of, you know, intervening and saying, you know, has anybody thought of investigating treason? Anyone? And I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> I take that to be the same as someone like Judge Beryl Howell, who, who says, you know, these insurrectionists, this isn't trespassing, you know, this isn't got caught smoking in Lafayette Park. This is part of, a, of an insurrection to overthrow the government. Um, but, you know, we also don't really have the explanation or expertise to quite understand what it's like to put 535 defendants through yeah. <laughs> through a court system yeah. that's already three years back, backed up because of COVID or two years backed up because of COVID. And, and a lot of, uh, if I were a prosecutor, I would feel like I've kind of lost my oomph uh, by, with, you know, trying to get people to plead out to anything. Uh, you know, if if I have to take 500 people to trial, we're no, we can't do that. And sort of reserving the trial time and the court's time for the conspiracy charges, the Proud Boys, the three percenters, um, the Oath Keepers. And so there's a lot of different things to weigh that I don't I just can't even understand uh, when you're trying to figure out how to how to resolve a, a case. Um, and so I. I generally tend to agree with Judge Beryl Howell um, to you know five hundred dollars for a misdemeanor and fifteen hundred for uh, for a felony when the taxpayers are spending two and a half billion dollars to secure the Capitol um, seems like a little seems a little light but you know I'm that's I <laughs> I don't I guess I don't see the difference respectfully between Sullivan saying you disrespect this flag and Beryl Howell saying this is more than just smoking in Lafayette Park. Do you know what I mean? And Judge Amy Berman Jackson, I don't mean to go off topic, saying <laughs> things like about Roger Stone, sir, you weren't standing up for the president. You were covering up for the president. Yeah. And Donald Trump delivered a corrupt pardon to him. And the very act of handing that pardon figuratively to Roger Stone, first a sentence commutation, then a pardon, is a crime. And I can't wait until we're in court attacking, litigating these corruptly delivered pardons. It is no different than if the president wrote on this piece of paper a pardon and then crammed it down somebody's throat and murdered them. 
by <laughs> by cramming a pardon down their throat. Would would the pardon purists say that's the president's prerogative? It's in the Constitution. It's unfettered. No, it's not the president's prerogative to use a pardon as part of a corrupt scheme to obstruct justice. Think about well, it. Well, Fooderfoss would. Fooderfoss thinks that the president can actually literally shoot somebody on Fifth yeah, Avenue well, and can't exactly. have the local Argue police that. even I, stop him. And the judges Dur- laughed. Dur- Dursch yes, is an inch him, away from making that argument. So. And I hope that we see a, a, a ruling as scathing oh. <laughs> in a future case like that. As this ruling. Um, Andrew, what's the overview here? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to steal that example, by the way. I, we could talk about pardons. That was the signal from AG to, like, let's get on with the actual <laughs> part of the program here. So one of the nice things, one of the very few nice things, is that when the big lie, when part of the attempt to undermine our democratic institutions comes from lawyers, we are not without power to, to do something about it, right? When when your Uncle Frank decides to stand on the street and say, you know, the Dominion voting machines could inject a million votes at any time to elect Hugo Chavez, like, there's not a damn thing you can do about it. But when lawyers go into court, they have certain obligations, right? And that's why we've been following this, this Michigan hearing uh, particularly closely, you know that from the show, uh, because it is about the it, it 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 in my view it gets at uh, an effective refutation of a claim that you still hear being made on the right right which is well you know we just got thrown out on all these technicalities and gosh if we'd only gotten a chance to put our evidence in you know we would have won you know instead of gone oh and 62 there's a whole section called why you didn't need an evidentiary hearing <laughs> because they fucking mentioned it so many times that's right because that is part of the, the ongoing war in social media, right? One of the things I loved the most uh, was um, the uh, city of Detroit's lawyer, David Fink, in his reply brief, noticed something that AG and I had noticed, which was in the middle of the sanctions hearing itself, when Howard Kleinhandler was asked, um, where do you get the basis for relief here anyway, right? Which, and the answer to that, by the way, is nothing, right? There was no statute that, this is a common question that is asked of lawyers. Hey, um, what statute, what gives you the right to seek relief in this court? Um, and he responded with something that was literally insane. He said, well, fraud vitiates everything. There's an 1874 case called Throckmorton versus United States. We're gonna go over it. And, and, I love the fact that that David Fink Page 61. did not respond the way a, a lawyer would, right? A lawyer would look it up and go, well, you know, Throckmorton is inapposite because blah, blah, blah. And, and David Fink says, I went and I Googled it. And Throckmorton is the kind of thing that never gets cited in court, but gets cited by lunatics and crazies. So, all right, I, I'm going to stop going off script here. Um, the ruling is in. It is 110 pages long. Uh, it is as delightful a bedtime reading as you could possibly have. Uh, it grants every request uh, made by counsel for uh, both the city of Detroit and the state of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, which is to say, 
paying lawyers fees in full. Uh, they stuck on a requirement that each of the lawyers do 12 hours of, of uh, continuing legal education, which is just, because lawyers hate I that I hope stuff. they go to your class. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, it, 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 it's perfect. Uh, and <laughs> refers all of them for sanctions. And, and I guess you probably have, have flagged that we're going to talk about the, the footnote that says, oh, and by the way, these grifters, I think it's, it's footnote 85, but it is, uh, by the way, these grifters like Sidney Powell are out there raising money by defying the court system. And so if they use that, if they crowdfund, if they're raising money to pay the sanctions that I'm ordering here, this is Judge Parker saying, I hope future disciplinary bodies will take that into account in determining whether to sanction or, uh, or, or disbar them from the practice of law. So um, that, was my, that was my way of saying I was very happy with the ruling. Yeah, I remember I, I tweeted it, I texted <laughs> to you, and per usual, we scrolled the end and read, uh, read the conclusion. <laughs> and then you sent me a text, you're like, this is, I, I, this is the best news I've ever heard my whole life. He's like, thank you for sending this to me. Um, it was actually, you actually used different words, but yeah. <laughs> um, I'll let you, if you feel like telling him, you can tell him. Oh, no. All right, cool. <laughs> uh, and, what yeah. happens on our text stays on our text, say <laughs> So then once we tweeted out the findings, we started to dig into the ruling. Today we're going to go over the findings as promised. Hey, this is an ad for Fields. Precious little cinnamon bun here. You probably know more than I do about CBD oil as a way to treat stress, anxiety, pain, and insomnia without, uh, well, the copy says the risk of hangover or addiction. And, you know, even I know what that means. But seriously, you probably also know that there are a ton of scam CBD products out there. I researched feels before taking this ad. You can check out their clinical reviews online and they publish third-party lab testing for potency, purity, and safety right there on their website. So when they say that Feels is a premium CBD, what they mean is that they offer three levels of concentration of CBD oil. 600 milligrams if you're like me, 1200 milligrams, and 2400 milligrams. Those are levels that are clinically proven to work, and Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience so that you find your perfect dose, and everyone's dose is different. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to making sure you get the best use of your CBD. So, how does it work? It's uh, sublingual. You place a few drops under the tongue where it's rapidly absorbed into the bloodstream for effects that last longer than smoking or vaping. You'll feel the difference in minutes. And uh, joining the Feels monthly membership makes your self-care easy. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any time. Here's what you do. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash cleanup and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. So that's F-E-A-L-S F-E-A-L-S dot com slash cleanup. Become a member. Get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels dot com slash cleanup. The ruling, like I said, and like you like you said, Andrew, succinctly organized and the sanctions hearings are breathtakingly detailed. Judge Parker starts with a summary opinion and order and then breaks down her ruling into five sections. What are the five sections? Yeah. Okay, so very, very quickly. First, and, and, and again, this is typical, right? So first, procedural history. How did we get here? There were several very technical and dumb procedural arguments that were made by uh, uh, Donald Campbell, who was the um, 
well respected, right? He's he's a sanctions lawyer. He's who you hire when you're in Michigan and you're facing these kinds of, of problems. Um, and he made a series of, of really bad technical procedural arguments that um, that no court wants to hear. Uh, so that's kind of part one. Um, part part two covers the sanctions motions, and we're not going to dig into it. Uh, but the but there was a weird quirk that I'd never seen before, and that is um, the the Detroit voter Robert Davis, who had intervened in the case, um, basically like intervened in the case. Uh, I can, in our Q&A, we've talked about intervention on the show, but essentially what you're saying is I have an interest in this litigation and I'm not sure that the existing parties will adequately cover that. And the court said, you know, this entire state's in here. The city is in here. Your interests are probably covered, but you know what? We don't have a voter. It's a close call. I'm going to let you intervene. Uh, and then Davis came into the case and basically did nothing. And the pleadings he filed were terrible. Uh, and then he was like, ooh, me too. I also want to get in on the money train, right? Uh, and the court was like, and again, Glenn, I don't know if you've ever seen this. Uh, the court said, you're entitled, right? There, your, your briefs are correct on the merits. You are entitled to sanctions. But because you're an asshole, I'm not giving you any award. And, and, and they said it slightly differently. But I've, I've never seen a court say, you're absolutely, you're 100% right on sanctions, but you're playing, yeah, like you've done nothing to advance this case. So you don't get any money, hmm. um, which I thought was interesting. Um, then uh, part three, applicable law. Um, I, we're going to talk about that. The court's power to sanction lawyers is very, 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 very broad. It's part of why the technical arguments being raised by the other side. You can shove it not, down somebody's throat and, yeah. and, and murder <laughs> with them. I'm going to steal. I've been using the Rod Blagojevich example, right? Which, But that's much better. Choking somebody on a pardon is a much better one. So, Glenn, I'm stealing that. Sorry. Um, You're welcome to it. <laughs> then section four is the fun one. Ooh. That is... The application, so we now laid out the law, then we get the application of the law to the facts. Um, and I suspect we're going to spend a, binder clip for a this lot one. of time on that one. Uh, and then uh, and then part five is the conclusion, the, in case you haven't figured out by page 94, I'm mad, I'm <laughs> real mad, uh, and I'm going to uh, impose everything I possibly can on you. Uh, and then some, and also and suggest. And all of you, yeah, all of you too. Every single, oh yeah, shocker, the court didn't go for Emily Newman's, it's my first day defense. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or role, like, I barely even knew. Uh, that was the best, because <clears throat> and we, we were not going to talk about it, so we do the one-liners, but like, <clears throat> role said, I, I maybe reviewed the complaint for an hour. Like, I don't I don't see how you can sanction me. The court was like, well, you signed a complaint that was 830 pages long. And if you only spent an hour on it, that's sanctionable conduct in and of itself. Yeah. A lawyer who signs a complaint verifies that they've read the damn thing. And so you have not read an 830-page complaint. Your sanctionable so conduct is fucking their, sanctionable. They only open their mouth to change feet. Yeah, <laughs> that is exactly, exactly right. So, all right, all right. So, so take it away, somebody. I, I will take it away. We're going to go over this, and and don't worry, it's not going to be too in the weeds. But I've highlighted my favorite parts. Um, <laughs> I felt like I was back in in college. Um, or high school. For those of you listening you... on the podcast, Allison has 800 pages stacked <laughs> up in front of her, highlighted in pink highlighter. It is spectacular. The only thing that's missing is the unicorn trapper keeper. Yeah, I thought of that. Or some, yeah, I felt like I really needed it. But 
you know, just a peachy is fine. Um, opinion and order, first page. This lawsuit represents a historic and profound abuse of the judicial process. That's the opening statement, which I love. Uh, it's one thing to take charge, uh, take on the charge of uh, vindicating rights associated with an allegedly fraudulent election. It's quite another to take on the charge of deceiving a federal court and the American people into believing that rights were infringed without regard to whether any laws or rights were in fact violated. This is what happened here. Individuals may have the right, within certain bounds, individuals may have the right to disseminate allegations of fraud unsupported by law or fact in the public sphere, but attorneys cannot exploit their privilege and access to the judicial process to do the same, and when an attorney has done so, sanctions are in order. So that's the, that's the opening. And I wanted to talk just for a minute, because the, you know, she, she goes on to say attorneys have an obligation to the judiciary, their profession and the public. And I know that this kind of shit lawyering really disturbs you on a personal level and a professional level because it, it tarnishes lawyers as, you know, as a profession, you know, you know? Yeah. Cause people ask me what I do and then I, and then I say what that is and then they're like, oh yeah, like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. And I, and then I have to, you know, say, no, I really, my major career is podcasting, right? Like, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they go on to say the attorney who filed the instant lawsuit abused the well-established rules applicable to the litigation process by proffering claims not backed by law, proffering claims not backed by evidence, but instead <laughs> speculation, conjecture, and unwarranted suspicion, <laughs> proffering factual allegations and claims without engaging in the required pre-filing inquiry and dragging out these proceedings even after they acknowledged it was too late to attain the relief that they sought. And then she puts in italics, and I love how she says, emphasis is on purpose here. She, she wants you to know she put this in italics for a reason. And this case was never about fraud. It was about undermining the people's faith in our democracy and debasing the judicial process to do so. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, and then finally... On this last page of the, just the introduction here, uh, the sanctity of both the courtroom and the litigation process are preserved only when attorneys adhere to this oath, their, their oath that they take, and follow the rules, and only when courts impose sanctions when attorneys do not. And that, that made me think of you, Glenn, and the, the accountability piece. Yeah. Um, and, and if you'll permit me at some point at the appropriate time to read the first sentence on page 110, I would love yeah. to do that <laughs> because it is so dramatic. It, it, it really knocks the wind out of you what this judge did. I, I spent 30 years in the courtroom. I never wanted to go to the Department of Justice and be a bureaucrat. So my office was six blocks away from Maine Justice, where that's the land where the bureaucrats dwell, and some good lawyers and good prosecutors are there too. I just wanted to stay in the courtroom. When I was in the Army, I didn't want to go to the Pentagon. I just wanted to be out in the field handling court-martial cases. Um, and what I will tell you, from 30 years appearing before more than 200 judges, civilian and military, trial court and appellate court, is... If they, some, they say something a little bit critical about what you say or do, if a judge said to me, Mr. Kirshner, I'm not all that persuaded by your argument. I, oh, oh, I mean, that hurts. And it, it's just that, you know, I didn't make the strongest possible argument. Um, when I read what Judge Parker did to these lawyers, all warranted, by the way, it's so dramatic, it's so unusual that all of these lawyers 
if I had, I am not a betting man. My betting <laughs> limit is one dollar. I would bet a buck. They will all be disbarred the minute their state bar counsel dig into this and take up this opinion. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's been dug into already with the with the public sanctions hearing and then this ruling. Um, it's not. It's kind of a little bit different from what's going on with Rudy Giuliani, where they started investigating whether or not to suspend or disbar him. And after about a minute, they were like, "Fuck, we gotta." give him a temporary suspension while we finish this big investigation because he is dangerous to be a lawyer. So they go, hi, hi, hi. We're on page two, and um, go ahead and just suspend him temporarily right now. It, it, so the, the common thread with what Glenn just said and what AG just, just said that, that I want to emphasize is how much, and you might not get this sense if you listen to our shows, but, but how much judges speak with what used to be called lawyerly restraint, right? When a judge says, Mr. Torres, I I don't know that I'm all that persuaded by X argument, that is the judge's way of coming over and kicking you in the shins and saying, this is the dumbest thing I've read in three weeks, okay? That's, That's what that means. So when a judge says, this is the dumbest argument I've ever heard. Like, I, it, it, that is a nuclear bomb. I mean, like, literally, it never happens in, in court. Um, and Rem- Reminds me of when Mueller went to paper. Wrote a very nice letter. You know, hey, um, um, you know, you mischaracterized my findings, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Best, you know, regards. And you know how hard it was Mueller. for Mueller to criticize his boss, his yeah. superior? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was not easy, but he felt it was important enough and he did it. Yeah, going to paper is, is and, and trying to convey that to people who, to, who aren't in the government or haven't been sort of listening uh, for a long time. It's, it's hard to convey. So, yeah, it's yeah. The, kind of the same thing when a judge goes, you're this is dumb. Like it's it's like or it or, or a bar grievance committee grants injunctive relief and suspends you from the practice of law before reaching a final ruling, I, I, again, I, I don't I don't handle those kinds of cases. I, I have volunteered to do so uh, uh, in connection with my FBA work. Um, I've never seen that. That that is them saying we're taking your keys away right now, uh, and you know making you sleep at the bar. Right? Like you have to blow it, into it, this it, breathalyzer to get into the courtroom. It, it is. I I have seen cases that are cut and dried of attorneys that have done nothing because you get disbarred as listeners know for stealing clients funds right that's that's the only and i have seen clear-cut cases of embezzlement and the attorney grievance commission is like well you know it's i let's not be hasty about you know like continue to steal some money and we'll eventually get to a ruling on you with giuliani it was you gotta stop now yeah and that that sort of lends itself to footnote 85 that you were talking about raising money off of the fact uh, and then the final thing, the plaintiff's attorneys have scorned their oath, flouted the rules, and attempted to undermine the integrity of the ju- judiciary along the way. As such, the court is duty-bound to grant the motions for sanctions filed by defendants and intervener defendants <laughs> and is imposing sanctions pursuant to Rule 11 of the Federal Civil Procedure, 28 U.S. Code Section 1927, and its own inherent authority. And that, that's the way that this whole thing breaks down is, is into those three authorities under which the court has power to sanction these lawyers. Um, The next uh, section that you talked about, section one here, procedural history. We went over that pretty thoroughly when we covered the sanctions hearing. Um, I'm just gonna flip through here to see if I have any favorite parts. Yeah. (laughs) 
There's pink, I see it. On December 7th, the court issued an opinion and an order denying the plaintiff's motion and thereby declining to grant the plaintiff's relief that they wanted, which the court noted was, quote, stunning in its scope and breathtaking in its reach as it sought to disenfranchise the votes of more than 5.5 million Michigan citizens. The court concluded that the plaintiff's lawsuit was subject to dismissal based on any one of several legal theories. One, their claims were barred by the 11th Amendment immunity. Two, their claims were barred under the doctrine of latches. Uh, Three, they lacked standing. Four, their claims were moot. And five, abstention was appropriate under the doctrine set forth in the Colorado River Water uh, Conservation District v. the United States. But the court also concluded that plaintiffs were not likely to succeed on the merits of their case. (laughs) All right. Quick Quick three-hour sidebar on Colorado River abstention. No, um, I'm, I'm not going to bore you to tears with that. Um, remember that this case was brought after the recount finished in Michigan, after Michigan appointed its slate of electors, and after the governor signed off and certified that slate of electors, right? You're, you're done at that point. And so it, it is... <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is, among Kraken cases, this was a particularly bad case. Right? <laughs> yeah, so the shittiest of the shit. Uh, and then section two is sanctions motions. They talk about those three authorities again, and that you know the, the they argue the basically just tell you what the motions were to sanction the lawyers from Detroit, Michigan. Let, let, let me let me ask you, how, how many times have you filed for for Rule Eleven sanctions? Let me count. Well, uh, zero. It, it, and I've talked about this. I've 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 filed Rule Eleven sanctions once, uh, and uh, general sanctions within the court's inherent authorities twice. Now that is, I think it's more common in civil practice, um, but that's twice in twenty years, right? Like in a in a in a fairly long career. Um, it's a thing you do, even as a lawyer, incredibly hesitantly. And as, as you'll hear as we go through, um, the, the Rule 11 process, we've, we've talked about that. We talked about the safe harbor provision. The, the Rule 11 process says, if I seek sanctions against you, I've got to let you know, and I've got to give you a copy of the motion, not the supporting <laughs> memorandum, <laughs> but I'm going to give you a copy of the motion three weeks in advance, 21 full calendar days, and if you withdraw that offending pleading at any time within the 21 days, that's why it's called a safe harbor. You're done. I get to go home. So so, so let's explain that. You can yeah, be as vexatious as you want to be, right? That's all in the, yeah, that's all in the applicable law, right? Because you're talking about, yep. that's exactly that's what she section. covers. She covers 28 U.S. Code 1927, Rule 11, safe harbor. She covers that here, too, and said, no, you... We, you and then there's something about signatures. I mean, <laughs> we can do we can do all of it. But but what I want you to keep in mind is the the law is set up. The statute is written to give the maximum benefit of the doubt to, hey, I made a mistake, right? And 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 these sanctions only get imposed when you didn't make a mistake. You did something wrong. You did it on purpose. You didn't recognize it. You didn't apologize. You didn't withdraw. You didn't do anything that we think of as kind of minimum level of appropriate conduct for a lawyer. So Mm -hmm. that's how I would summarize that. 
Yep. And so we know a little bit about Rule 11. We know a little bit about 28 U.S. Code 1927. Whoso multiplies the proceedings in any case unreasonably and vexatiously may be required by the court to satisfy personally the excess costs, expense, and attorney, attorney's fees, etc. Um, and they, in this a section for applicable law, they, they have a whole section just dedicated to Linwood. <laughs> Linwood. <laughs> and they say, you know, after that July 12th hearing, uh, would maintain the court lacks jurisdiction to sanction him because he played no role in drafting the complaint, didn't read any of the documents, wasn't aware of the affidavits attached to it, and didn't give permission for his name to be included. He said, uh, I don't specifically recall being asked about the Michigan complaint, but I had generally indicated to Sidney Powell that if she needed a quote-unquote trial lawyer, I'd be certainly willing to help her. S- sidebar, if you ever meet a lawyer who refers to themselves as a quote-unquote trial lawyer? Like, you're, you've are you met Lionel Hutz. Anyway, In this case, obviously, my name was included. Uh, my experience or my skills apparently were never needed, so I didn't have any involvement with it. Would, ha- would I have objected uh, to have my name included? No, I don't believe so. <laughs> so dumb. Would then, then, after all that, saying, you know, hey, I, I you know, I... You should just leave me off of this. Uh, he denied ever being served with the motion for sanctions, is what you were talking about, because uh, the court required him to be there. According to Wood, he only discovered that he'd been included as counsel for this matter when he saw a newspaper article about the sanctions motion. Oops. Uh, I didn't receive any notice about this until I saw something in the newspaper. Uh, when the court turned to Sidney Powell and asked whether she told Wood his name was being placed on the pleading, she said, uh, my view is that I... St- specifically asked Mr. Wood for his permission. I can't imagine I would have put his name on any pleading without understanding that he'd given me permission to do so. Uh, Powell then suggested the misunderstanding between her and Wood, and this is when Klein Handler uh, did not recall whether he spoke to Wood before, right? Yeah, and, and, and so one of the things, I, I, I got to make a bet with you that you've got a sentence highlighted that I know you have to have, have highlighted. Um, Judge Parker did made a ruling. And, and again, this, this hearings, hopefully many of you watched them. It was six hours of delightful entertainment. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and she required that every lawyer who had been involved in the case, who had been named in any way whatsoever, appear at this hearing. And the reason she did that is spelled out in this, in the sanctions order. And it is, there's a coordinated effort by the people who made the decisions to point the finger and go like, well, you know, I was consulting, but like I didn't sign the thing. That was, you know, Greg Roll, our local counsel, and then local counsel to go, well, I signed the thing, but really I didn't have anything to do with drafting it. And she says, nobody wants to take responsibility for having filed this. Everybody's pointing fingers at each other. One of the things that a very, very smart lawyer can do, and Judge Parker, you know, you don't often take cross-examination lessons from the judge in the case, uh, but she got in and 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 sort of masterfully engaged in cross-examination in the way that only a judge can do by saying to Linwood, "Hey, do you give your permission to be on here?" Well, I don't know. Um, all right, Sidney <laughs> Powell, did 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 you did just you put permission? his name on without? Because one of the two of you is lying, mm-hmm. and one of the two of you is responsible, and I can ask a question in such a way that. You, the only way to answer it is by equivocating and giving terrible answers. And, and I really hope you, you, you do indeed. You've turned right to the page, which says <laughs> Lynn Wood is not credible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> says, 
No reasonable attorney would sit back silently if his or her name was listed on a counsel as counsel in a case if permission to do so had not been given. Second, Wood is not credible. And there's a footnote. <laughs> Wood is not credible. 18. 18. Notably. <laughs> I, it, it, she came with citations for <laughs> you're a lying sack of crap. Yeah. That's, that's pretty good. He claims he was never served with the city's motion for sanctions. However, counsel for the city uh, represents that the motion was sent to Wood via email and regular mail. Kimberly Hunt, city attorney, is a managing, manager for city attorneys, affirms in the affidavit she mailed it, first class copy, et cetera, et cetera. Despite being told he had the opportunity, um, Wood surprisingly chose not to do so. Uh, to attach an affidavit to put uh, under, you know, to put the order under oath behind factual assertions. More importantly, can, can, can I can I do eight seconds on that? Yeah, this was another because this is another trick that Linwood kept trying to pull, and Judge Parker was having none of it. And that was what he wanted to do was say, "Hey, um, I don't understand. Why don't you just ask the lawyers on this call whether I had anything to do with it, right?" And the reason for that is because that does not require him to file a pleading signed in his handwriting that says uh, that takes a position right because he knows he's lying and so he's like yeah why don't you just informally poll you know and judge parker was like no i'm gonna allow you to file a brief uh you can do that and then shocker when she got the brief she went to see if he attached an affidavit nope. signed under penalty of perjury nope. and no he did not nope. so yeah. this is my favorite part though when because this is why linwood is not credible more importantly, why he's not credible. Would social media postings undermine his current assertions? <laughs> as do his statements in other court proceedings. As discussed during the July 12th hearing, on the day the city emailed copies of the Safe Harbor letter and the Safe Harbor motion to the plaintiff's counsel, Wood tweeted a link to an article containing a copy of the motion <laughs> <laughs> stating... When you get falsely accused by the likes of David Fink and Mark Elias in a propaganda rag like law and crime, you smile because you know you're over the target and the enemy is running scared. So he's trying to tell the court he didn't get a copy, but he fucking tweeted, and, <laughs> he and, tweeted it out. And six weeks before he admits to having found out about it. Yeah. And on January 5th, the day the city filed the motion, Wood tweeted a link to an article with the motion in it, stating that it was unfair for the city to seek sanctions against him. So he's seriously telling the lawyer, nobody ever told me, judge, but it's right on his social media. He didn't even delete it. It was all there that he, <laughs> the day that these motions went out, he tweeted about how unfair they were. So I thought that was pretty funny. Well, let's, let's bring Glenn in. I'm reminded of what my mom used to say when we were roughhousing. Right? It's all fun and games until somebody loses an eye. This is so ridiculous. It's all fun and games until somebody loses a democracy. Yes. Here and what these lawyers were doing was trying to undermine democracy, trying to take away our vote. I mean, none of it is funny, but none of it is really funny. Um, and I hope it's not a trend in our courts. I hope that when Judge Parker did this, you know, I read the Giuliani uh, sanctions opinion by the New York Appellate Court, That's right? And that was like brutal. Yeah. And then the court right here in D.C. up the street said, us too, us too, we're suspending Rudy Giuliani. And then Linda Parker said, oh yeah, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she did this, and thank goodness she did this. And I hope this has an impact, because it's all fun and games until we lose our right to vote. 
Yeah, and she and she says that multi, you know multiple times. She refers to that it, the, the court is duty bound uh, to for to um, impose sanctions here for deterrence purposes. Yeah. Um, and and that's what made me think of you the most. Think of you the most, and why I wanted to have you here today was because we talk about the DOJ being duty bound to investigate what Trump did with the Department of Justice or obstruction of justice, or we talk about the Congress being duty bound to impeach Donald Trump. You know, even if we think that the Senate might not vote to convict, that it's it's a dereliction of duty when you don't do these things, and that is what she really drives home uh, in in this. And you know what the Department ruling. of Justice does to us as federal prosecutors? They have a computer system. I know nothing about computers, but it it the computer reads every opinion that gets published anywhere in the nation. And if there's anything they have, I don't know, is it an algorithm or is it, a, I don't know how those things work, but if there's anything that a judge says that is critical of a federal prosecutor, an OPR, Office of Professional Responsibility Inquiry, level one, gets opened. I've been on the receiving end of that because judges don't always like <laughs> what I say in court. I've always been never convicted, like in strikes, <laughs> never convicted. No, and I'm not, I, I don't mean to be irreverent about that. But, you know, if we say something and some judge is like, well, we don't know, maybe you didn't turn over all of the Brady evidence, all of the exculpatory information, we are under investigation like that. You can't avoid it. And what we do, actually, when we have a critical opinion, either handed down by an appellate court or something critical said about us in, in court by a trial judge, we self-refer. Just want to, OPR, I want to let you know, yeah. the judge just said, because usually, because I was confident that I had done nothing wrong. But a judge criticized me, OPR, here you go, want you to know. I filed a complaint against Bill Barr the minute Judge Reggie Walton issued that opinion saying Bill Barr lacks candor. Bill Barr spun the Mueller report. Bill Barr's statements about the Mueller report are undermined by the content of the Mueller report and on and on and on. So my friend was the head of OPR, I think he still is, Jeff Ragsdale, who I worked with for decades. And I said, Mr. Ragsdale, I am referring Bill Barr for an investigation at the Office of Professional Responsibility because look at what Judge Reggie Walton just said about him. Yeah. And that's the way the system should work. When federal judges call out an unethical prosecutor or a potentially unethical prosecutor, well, then we need to be investigated. We need to be made to account because our responsibility to represent you all, to represent the people of the United States, couldn't be more important. And, you know, it's like this cherished responsibility that we have. So when these clowns go in and try to do what they did to our democracy, they ought to be sanctioned, they ought to be suspended, they ought to be disbarred. And I hope Judge Parker's opinion has the deterrent effect that it it's designed to have. Yeah, I, the, I hope so too. Those of you who had Glenn in the pool for first stripes reference, you can uh, ca cash out. It was long odds, but sometimes it's good to play the long shots. Um, at, at, but dude, seriously, I, I, I do not want to undermine the, the excellent point on uh, accountability more generally. I, I, Glenn, I don't know if you were struck in the same way that, that I was, that um, it felt like, and again, Linda Parker was at, a, at, was at an A throughout the entire proceedings. She was at about an eight and a half level of intensity. Uh, but where she peaked to 10 uh, was in the five to 10 minutes in which she was addressing the unique situation of Stephanie Lynn Gentilla, who was the appellate counsel here, uh, who made uh, an argument that um, uh, became uh, notorious on social media 
uh, when uh, the, the pleading said, you know, the idea that lawyers have a First Amendment right to litigate uh, is uh, without question, and it would insult the court to list any authorities here. But by, by the way, not great pleading practice to say that. And uh, well, that's why she's got to take the class now. And, and, <laughs> and Judge Parker uh, looked at looked at at at, uh, at, at, at Ms. Gentilla and said, um, "I can promise you, this court will not be upset or offended or insulted in any way. Uh, what are your authorities?" And then uh, Stephanie Gentilla filibustered for four minutes on the level of like the third grader who hasn't read the book report, right? Uh, ended, and, and I remember this word for word because it's just so great with, does that answer the court's question? And then Judge Parker said, no, no, it does not. Um, and, and directed her to an opinion, a Sixth Circuit opinion called Mezabov versus Allen. Um, and I, I, cutting to the chase, Nowhere in the supplemental briefs that that Stephanie Lynn Gentilla was allowed to file did she discuss the case of Mezabov versus Allen. Again, free practice tip here. If a judge says, what about this case? And then you submit a pleading that decides not to discuss that case, that's not good. Um, The reason she didn't discuss the case is because Mezabov versus Allen says, Lawyers it completely don't have, undermines her point. Yeah, it, it says the opposite, yeah. and 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 it, it's why I wanted to, to to bring it back in. I know a little bit of a, a, a circuitous path, but Mezabov versus Allen says, when you're a lawyer, you're an instrument in the system. You work on behalf of your client, but you do not have an inherent First Amendment right to believe stuff because Donald Trump believes it, or because it's on Fox News, or what. Like you. <clears throat> are required to exercise the highest standards of your profession. We look to you to gatekeep your dumbass clients, not to cheerlead them. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 it really felt to me like that was again, Judge Parker not happy the entire time. But but that mo- I think that argument in particular, the like, well I do too have a First Amendment freedoms of speech. Like, no, you don't have a free speech there. And I and I think like that that really cut into into her pretty he- pretty deeply. Yeah, and on the heels of that, um, the judge, and that's all uh, in the discussion part, right? Um, but you know, when she talked about what you know what you said, but she, you know, she went on to to iterate that uh, in that vein, you can't use other dumbass lawyers' stuff to bolster your case without googling it, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, without looking into, it, without verifying. Um, what it, so it's it's not even just no you don't have a First Amendment right but to rely on other lawyers' filings in cases that were laughed out of court uh, and affidavits in, in sworn affidavits from like Corona that were laughed out of court to to just attach that and, and assume that it's real is that was something that she was also like very upset about um, but right now I want to talk about Emily Newman Newman and jo- and Gregory Roll. Uh, Newman contends she had a very limited role. This was uh, the person who said she only spent like five hours and she did it from home, so it doesn't count from home. Why would you? This is the it's my first day defense, right? But she did it from home. She wasn't wearing her lawsuit. That was for that was for you. Um, therefore, she, she she I should not be subject to sanctions. I was in my pajamas. Uh, Newman does not suggest that her name was included without her permission. 
In addition, Newman doesn't cite case law suggesting that any attorney may not be sanctioned under Rule 11 or any other source of sanctions if the time spent on the relevant lawsuit doesn't surpass an unidentified threshold. (laughs) So, like, there was no citation saying at five hours and one minute, that's when you're on the hook. It, it, I mean, let me, let me jump in because, look, it, it, I love making fun of Emily Newman as much as anyone, and I will continue to do so throughout the show. There's a level to which I, 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 I'm almost tempted to have sympathy, and that is I spent nine years across two separate firms as an associate, first at a mega firm, then at a boutique firm, which is still 100 lawyers, right? And I get the idea. Like, there, there's a level at which if you're a third-year associate churning away at Covington and Burling, they got 50,000 lawyers. You haven't even met the partner who's going to litigate this case. It just comes down the assignment, and it's like, hey, man, write this. I, I, I do get that. And there is, there is a certain, in Rule 11 jurisprudence, there's a certain level of trying to find the decision makers. Any temptation I have to have sympathy for Emily Newman, Greg Roll, Julia Holler is instantly evaporated. Uh, I, I can't remember the name of the website. Uh, I think it's like, uh, uh, you know, un, uh, unethicallawyer.com or something like that. There's a, there's a, you can find out. There's a, it's an easy Google. There's a website that tracks the lawyers that have appeared in these 62 Kraken lawsuits. And guess who appears multiple times in these Kraken lawsuits? Emily Newman, Greg Roll, Howard Kleinhandler, Julia Haller. That th- this is not one person who was swept up, who just you know needed to do work for a partner. This is somebody who's a part of the right wing grift machine. And I, I and sorry, <laughs> she no, don't no, sorry, that's funny. Uh, and not funny, sorry. Um, it's a little funny. Newman's responsibility for any Rule 11 violation is not diminished based on where those working hours were spent, (laughs) particularly during a global pandemic when many individuals were working from home. And then she she has citations, too. She's not just this isn't just common sense. There's she's got citations for this. Uh, whether There's attorneys... a footnote that says, I'm in my pajamas from the waist down right now. Yeah. <laughs> if an affidavit filed in this case, Roll stated that approximately 6.30 p.m. on the day the lawsuit was filed, he was contacted by an associate who asked Roll if he would assist in litigation involving alleged election fraud in Michigan. He thereafter received a copy of the already prepared 830-page initial complaint. Uh, Roll said he took well over an hour to review it. <laughs> To the extent Roll asserts he should not be sanctioned because he read the pleading only in one day, of its within one day of its filing, uh, the argument does not fly. I don't think I've ever heard a judge say that. <laughs> no, that that's no. a little uh, colloquial. That's definitely a little colloquial. Um, the, the court finds it, it exceedingly difficult to believe that Roll read an 830-page complaint in just well over an hour on the day he filed it. So Roll's argument, in and of itself reveals sanctionable conduct. This is what you were talking about. Rule 11B explains that by presenting a pleading to the court, an attorney certifies to the best of his per- the person's knowledge, information, and belief formed after a reasonable inquiry of the circumstances. The complaint is not being filed for an improper purpose and is well-grounded in law and fact. You have to do that. That's part of the thing. So y- you telling me that you only spent an hour on this thing is sanctionable. So, tr- true story. I had... Uh, there was a computer error 
that did not renew my registration in the federal courts in Maryland, right? So I'm admitted in a couple different states and a couple different jurisdictions. Um, this did not occur to me until, uh, to, to, to check, uh, until the day I was preparing a notice of removal from state court. Um, and as Glenn knows, uh, removal notices are, are strictly time control. Right? They're super straightforward. All the question is, is, is there diversity, for the, for the purpose of, of my motion, are, is there diversity of the parties and does the amount in controversy exceed $75,000? That's obvious from the face of the complaint. This is, the reason I left it to the last day is because I could crank it out in 30 minutes. So I woke up, you know, got on the computer, went to file it, and it, you know, gave me the big red screen of it. It was like, uh, you're not licensed in this jurisdiction. Um, so I had to call a friend of mine and say, hey, this has to be filed today, right? If I don't file it, it's it's going to get kicked. Um, I need you to co-counsel with me and, and file this notice of removal. And then once they changed the little thing, you know, the, the court said, oh, yeah, we see the problem uh, and we can get that fixed for you by tomorrow. And I'm like, great. Well, the, <laughs> the rules say I got to file it today. So I got a, a buddy to sign on and file that motion for me. Um, he spent I, I, I compensated him for his time. Um, he spent nine hours um, doing a favor for me. Right. Because he said, look, I, I get that it's a it's a one page notice of removal, but my name's going on this. One page, nine hours, 830 pages, one hour. <laughs> he, it, 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 he took that seriously he because he he's a real lawyer, because this is how we really practice. The, those of us who are not Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani take that seriously. And, and I wasn't offended, right? I expected that. I knew that because I, did, he's a real lawyer. I'm a real lawyer. So anyway. Yeah. yeah. Did you have anything you want to add? I didn't, other than I feel like I'm back in appellate court the way you guys do deep dives into these opinions. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing, really. <laughs> uh, thank what would you, you say is your best case supporting your position, Mr. Kirshner? Oh, yeah. good Lord. What's the First Amendment? I have a right to free speech. I can say what I want. It's Professor Kirshner to you. Um, anyway, the final, the final uh, section of the applicable law. They talk about safe harbor, which you've already covered. Um, you know, you have a, an amount of time. We're filing sanctions motions. You have a safe harbor period to pull pull your shitty lawsuit, and they did not. Uh, and and she just shoots down every single argument that they didn't know about it, especially since Linwood tweeted about it multiple times and linked to the article. Okay, um, and and sanctions pursuant to the court's inherent authority to impose sanctions, right? Uh, it depends, independent basis for sanctioning on bad faith conduct in litigation, which uh, she spends the entire next section uh, <laughs> giving very detailed reasons about how this was bad faith. And a lot of this we covered uh, very, uh, in, in very like excruciating detail when we talked about the sanctions hearing. Because if you remember the sanctions hearing, she didn't just say, you know, y'all are bad here's why you're bad she went through each and every like affidavit and she talked about what you know asked questions as to what did you even ask about what the law is in michigan election law is in michigan did you uh do math on these numbers the ramsfeld number was it ram ramsland Russell ramsland ramsland numbers ramsland. 
uh, it's just mathematically obviously incorrect. Did you ask anybody um, if this, you know, do any of any due diligence to find out if any of this was factual? And she goes through that again and basically, um, you know, just rips every single individual um, argument that any of the lawyers made, just rips it to shreds and, and says, you know, and, and pursuant to that, uh, I can find on, you know, and she mentions as she goes through uh, the three powers of author- the three authorities she has to, to um, uh, impose sanctions and how each of these particular events uh, relates to that or falls under that category. It's just so well written. And if you haven't, uh, I highly recommend reading it. Um, but there, I do have a couple of favorites. <laughs> um, after the July 12th hearing, plaintiff's counsel pointed for the first time to the Supreme Court decision Throckmorton. This is what you were talking about. As supporting the court's authority to take, uh, it seems the attorneys are suggesting any equitable action in connection with the 2020 presidential election. Um, and she goes on to say, plaintiff's counsel citation to Throckmorton is puzzling, both because the case relates to a 19th century land grant and has nothing to do with election law, and because the Supreme Court held that the grant could not be collaterally attacked on the basis that the judgment was produced by fraud. So not only it has nothing to do with election law, but you're citing it improperly. You, you, the, the argument to be made in Throckmorton is against you. Like, it didn't, and she basically so breaks it down in a lot of detail, but it's, it's, that's one of my favorites. Little secret here. Um, one of the things that lawyers have access to is a service, Lexus or Westlaw, that when you type in a case, it will tell you exactly how many times that case has been cited. It will tell you with little color-coded hints, like were the cases citing it favorable? Were they slightly against it? Is it overruled? Is it not right? And, and so when you put Throckmorton into Westlaw, what you get are three cases from the 19th century and like one case from a district court in like 1904, right? The case doesn't from a legal, per- and from a legal perspective, right? Citations are what's important, right? Like the, the landmark cases are landmark cases because they get cited by other cases. They've influenced those other cases. So it, it, this was absolutely, this is my favorite part of the order. And uh, my favorite part of the, of the proceedings was when uh, uh, David Fink realized like, Okay, what we have here is a sovereign citizen level argument. We have somebody. No, no, I'm not. I'm not kidding. We have somebody who is trying to zoom in and take little pieces of language and you know make them fit the like gold fringe on the flag. And if it because Throckmorton uses the phrase "fraud vitiates everything," mm. as Judge Parker points out. Fraud did not vitiate the result in Throckmorton, right? Like in this case that they're citing. And and it just, that that pointing out that disconnect and being able, I, I was really, really impressed. Um, and Fink's lawyering in this has been spectacular. Yes. I mean, it really, uh, I, I hope his practice has, has boomed as a result of this because he's a damn good lawyer. Um, being able to convey that succinctly to a judge of, oh, this is not a legal argument, this is a crazy person argument, and this is an additional reason for sanctions, can be really hard. And I know, like, I've given multiple, you know, TED Talk-style talks on sovereign citizens, and, like, it's hard to explain with 45 minutes and PowerPoint. 
I tried two sovereign citizens. Oh my God, you've got it. We've got to go down this rabbit trail here. No, and, and, and yeah, it's um, so. These were run-of-the-mill murderers, right? They <laughs> killed somebody in D.C. I, I believe me, I, more murderers than I can remember. Um, and but there were people who were going around, literally giving seminars on how to claim you're a sovereign citizen to use as a defense in your criminal trial, and. You know, the, the, the court system is not really equipped to deal with this. And so what they do, unfortunately, is they tend to inject these people into the mental health stream. We send them to St. Elizabeth's Psychiatric uh, Hospital, and, and then everything gets derailed by way of a criminal prosecution. But, and I'm not going to go on my, on my sovereign citizen rant, but those folks are so extraordinarily difficult for everybody to deal with. And they're like fighting a war of attrition in the courts, really. Oh, we have one in the insurrection. In, in, um, yeah, we do have a, that's right. Mm-hmm. We have a sovereign citizen. She got red fingerprints and her signature in red. And I jokingly asked, uh, um, who's the guy, Scott McFarlane? Who's the guy doing? Scott McFarlane, yeah. yeah, NBC News. I said, is that blood joking? And he, he's like, yes. <laughs> so, and what I like about Scott, or in red. he's interviewing people from the jail. They're making admissions. And then that is admissible evidence in court. Woo-hoo. So I, lo- I love Scott. We love Scott. Yes, yes, we do. He's just doing an incredible job. Um, now, also, at the July 12th hearing, and you, you mentioned this too, Kleinhandler told the court that it was completely irrelevant whether the conduct plaintiffs claimed was violative of Michigan law was actually unlawful. He says it's totally irrelevant. This is because counsel argued the conduct raised suspicion, and that was significant, uh, and what was significant was the mere chance for, uh, for misfeasance to occur. But litigants and attorneys can't come to federal court uh, asserting that certain acts violate the law based only upon an opportunity for or counsel and the litigants' suspicion of a violation of the law. So I thought that was pretty, that was pretty interesting, too. Um, she then goes into counsel's failure to inquire into the requirements of Michigan election law, which I touched on. And, and this, um, there's two pages here um, <laughs> after... After uh, in the section of whether the plaintiff's counsel presented pleadings for which the factual contentions lacked evidentiary support or if specifically so identified would likely have evidentiary support in violation of Rule 11. And the first page is the sanctionable, the sanctionable conduct under Rule 11B3. And, and she talks about that the plaintiff's attorneys argue they genuinely believed the factual allegations in the lawsuit. And they argue that affiants genuinely believed, those are the people who signed the affidavits, you know, like Corona and whatnot, <laughs> they genuinely believed the same and submitted their affidavits in good faith. And then here's the sentence that I love. Of course, an empty head but pure heart does not justify lodging patently unsupported <laughs> factual assertions. Uh, but apparently that's a, a, a term of art, a legal term of art, the, the empty head. But judges don't talk like that. Mm-mm. I mean, they never, literally, they never say things like that. They're very circumspect. And so that's why this really is such a dramatic opinion. She goes on to say, to be clear as to Rule 11b3, the court is not concerned with whether counsel's conduct was done in bad faith. The court is concerned only with what the reports and affidavits say and reveal on their face and what plaintiff's counsel should or should not have done before presenting them in light of what is revealed on their face. So she's so, so like, even we can talk about empty head, pure heart if you want. Not even the point. We have to take these on their face, what they actually say to us. And then 
the page dedicated to no evidentiary hearing is needed. Because if you remember the July 12th hearing, every two seconds, somebody was like, well, if we just had an evidentiary hearing, you'd have all that. We've just got an evidentiary hearing. If you could just give us an evidentiary hearing, like over and over and over again. I remember I text, I texted Andrew. I'm like, what the fuck is this shit with an evidentiary hearing? (laughs) And, and, and I mean, let's unpack that argument for a second. What the lawyers were arguing in this case was, you cannot, as a judge, say that the Melissa Carone affidavit is fraudulent, stupid, and not a thing that any smart lawyer should introduce, any competent lawyer should introduce into court, until you've held a special hearing and brought Melissa Carone in and heard her testify and subjected her to cross-examination. And Judge Parker was like, the fuck I can't. Well, that totally, right? like, that totally like, precludes the idea of doing any it, it, uh, research on your Ma- Melissa Carone's affidavit says, in effect, I saw a truck pull up and a guy had a bag, and I'm pretty sure the bag had votes for Joe Biden in it. And the court goes, and I'm, I am really not doing an injustice no. to her affidavit. The court goes through and says, any any person of average intelligence would go, um, would, would examine that affidavit and say, that cannot support the claims that are made that cite that affidavit for support. And... No, you don't get an evidentiary hearing. That's your job as a lawyer. And and again, you know, kick back to Glenn. We can we can talk about this as a, as a civil litigator. This is my job every day, right? Is to gatekeep my clients. I'll give you a perfect example. Anybody who does any forward facing business, who's been one of my clients, will call me to say, "I want to sue this person over a bad Yelp review." Right. And I have to give them my standard. You can't sue people over bad Yelp reviews lecture. Right. If I did not do that, I would be subject to the same kinds of sanctions because I know you can't sue people over a bad Yelp review. And it's my job as a lawyer not to like, I, yeah, I, I cheerlead really for my clients. Wanna. Right. I, it, it, it doesn't matter how much I love them I'm and good, how much I'm in good faith. I'm doing yeah. it. I really, it was really I could bad think, service. I could agree 100% with all the dumb shit they say about that, but it's my job to tell them, no, you can't do that. And you know how the phrase, oh, but, but we were denied an evidentiary hearing. We need an evidentiary hearing. You know how that always landed to me? But her emails. <laughs> um, where's the server? Where's the server? And now I think it's, we need the routers. Joe Biden's laptop. Yeah, the no, Hunter's, Hunter Hunter's laptop. laptop. And Hunter's we're going to build a wall and Mexico will pay for it. That's what this is. And why these attorneys, and how many times did you hear Rudy and the Kraken lady and the others as all this election, election challenge litigation was unfolding, step to the cameras and tell the gullible, the Trump base, we, we, we're being denied an evidentiary hearing. We need an evidentiary that is but her emails. Where's the mm-hmm. server? We need mm-hmm. the router. That's all that is. And the fact that these clowns, as Andrew, we don't do this in court. The fact that these clowns would try to do that in court before a federal court judge is, uh, it, it's inexplicable. I, I, another pick your lawyer brain question. If you were Donald Campbell... Or if you are, and I'm forgetting one of you in the audience may, may help me remember the the local uh, uh, Michigan guy that uh, that Lynn Wood hired at the very end. Again, Paul uh, Paul something or other. Anyway, you have a respectable practice. Um, if you're Donald Campbell, you have, as far as I can tell, the preeminent 
uh, lawyer sanctions practice in the state of Michigan. Do you, do, a, do you take these cases, and and B, what do you what do you argue? You mean if you're if you're uh, the good guy? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you per- imagine let's 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 put all of Donald Campbell's qualifications on you. That's your career instead of career prosecutor. Uh, and Howard Kleinhandler comes to you and says, "Hey, we need the best. Will you would you represent me?" No, I mean, you, there there are things you will not do. There's things that you shouldn't do for money if you care about what you do. You shouldn't do it for power. You shouldn't do it for the connections you think it might open to you. No, of course not. I I didn't know and set you up that way, but I just I just wanted to get on the record. Other lawyers agreeing because I've I've had shade thrown my way because I've called these folks out. Um, you know, on the show and on social media and said, you know, when you're a civil litigator, you don't have to represent the client. Right. You know, that they, they, everybody has a right to a lawyer, but they don't have a right to you as a lawyer. And uh, and, well, and, and some of my friends are I agree are some you. of the best white collar defense attorneys in the country or in D.C. who started out as prosecutors in my yep. old law. And they're being called by judges. Hey, will you take on some insurrectionists? And many of them are like, Oh hell no, Judge! No, and I, lo- I love you. I respect them. you, Where but oh hell no, I won't John do Pierce? it. <laughs> Where is he? Um, and this goes on. I mean, just detail after detail. Uh, you know, talking about counsel's failure to inquire into evidentiary support for factual assertions. Um, just uh, counsel's failure to present any evidentiary support for factual assertions. And then it gets to the, they even addressed this, and I was glad that she addressed this. It, you remember when um, Linwood made a t- posted a Telegram <laughs> post uh, within hours of the hearing's conclusions? Um, it says it, she says it gives some insight, as do the introductory remarks in the plaintiff's counsel's supplemental brief. Uh, what is most important, however, and what is what very clearly reflect, reflects bad faith, is that plaintiffs' attorneys are trying to use the judicial process to frame a public narrative. And, and That's th- right. this kind of goes on a little bit and it's sort of connected to what the footnote that you said about, and if you try to raise money off of this to pay for your um, attorney's fees that I'm sanctioning, that's, you know, I want whatever association is reviewing your law license to consider that you're doing that. Um, another thing here on page 91, it's not acceptable to support a lawsuit with opinions which counsel herself claims no reasonable person would accept as fact. (laughs) You knew knew that was coming back to bite Sidney Powell. And which were inexact, exaggerated, and hyperbole. Nor is it acceptable to use the federal judiciary as a political forum to satisfy one's political agenda. Such behavior by any attorney in a court of law has consequences. So that was when, um, I believe, when Sidney Powell famously said, um, no one can take what I'm saying seriously, but you have to, and and trying to argue those two things at the same time. It troubles me greatly to be rooting for an international multi-billion dollar corporation (laughs) that is connected at politics at the highest level in Dominion voting systems. But God bless Dominion voting systems for, for bringing their defamation lawsuits because, it, it, it again, that's that's the other half of this. And it, and it sucks. I mean, the reality is, you know, um, 
I'd love to have a, a judicial system uh, that recognized uh, that, you, that a fundamental right to vote enshrined in the Constitution. We don't have that. Um, we have Supreme Court opinions to the contrary, by the way. Um, and I would love if this could be driven by ordinary folks. Uh, we don't have that. Um, instead, we have a multi-tiered justice system, and those who get the best justice are billion-dollar corporations. Um, and uh, and so I, I, I got to say I'm happy to see that at least being turned on, on these folks right and now. And can I ask you, because Andrew is the expert in civil litigation. I've never filed a civil complaint. I've never spent a day litigating a civil case. I sense a trap coming. But the, no, no. Um, but it strikes me, an old criminal lawyer, that... When you're being sued for defamation, for lying to somebody's detriment, the defense that I'm such a liar, nobody would believe me, doesn't sound like a winning, a winning defense. That's like if I were trying somebody for murder and the guy's like, oh, I've killed so many people, I can't remember who I've killed. <laughs> not, a, not a winning defense. So I, I, I think it is, I mean, for folks who have litigated as much in the court of public opinion as in real courts. Um, it's it's a surprisingly tone-deaf move. I understand where it comes from, right? It comes from the, the, the fact that one of the elements of defamation is that a statement must be provably true or false in order to support the basis for a claim. Defama because of that, defamation suits are notoriously difficult to dismiss, right? Because at the end of the day, it comes down to, well, what did X mean about Y? When you, right? Like, when you dismiss out a lawsuit, I know all of you know this, but some of the people listening to the show don't. But when you dismiss out a lawsuit, you, you intervene at an early stage. You don't even have to answer the complaint. You got to say, it doesn't matter. Even if everything they said in this complaint is true, that's not the basis for a lawsuit. Go home, right? Mm. I file intentional infliction of emotional distress. Glenn has been smirking at me from across the table. It's not true, by the way. He's been a polite gentleman throughout the entire thing. But even if it is true, you know what? He's allowed to smirk at me all he wants. That's not the basis for an IIED claim. I get to move to dismiss that. Um, the reason you want to move to dismiss is because discovery is super expensive. And if you don't move to dismiss, then you have to answer and then you have to exchange documents and right. So they're looking for a way to tee up a motion to dismiss. And I get that from a legal standpoint, but again and again and again, and this has happened. And by the way, it's, it's happened on our side as well, right? Um, uh, Rachel Maddow uh, successfully dismissed uh, a lawsuit brought by OAN uh, in which she said on the air, OAN is, you know, literally paid a uh, paid asset of the Russian government uh, and, and argued, again, quite correctly. When, when I say literally is an asset of the Russian government, I don't mean literally is an asset of the Russian government. I mean, come on, they're helping the Russians. Right. And that's protected opinion. And it is. Well, right? And Sputnik is part of it, which is paid for by Russia. Yeah, yes. Right. So, so literally. There's a lot. There's a lot to, to dig out there. Let's but, not unpack that. But right yes. Now. But but so um, so that yeah that that's I think there's kind of that clash between looking for a way to get out and not understanding what you're saying. Tucker Carlson saying I'm a persona. Mm. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> the Russians are talking about me and they unmasked my name. I'm angry. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, 
they, she goes on here to talk to talk about a little bit about council's failure to look beyond their prejudices and political beliefs, right? So during this litigation, this is what happened. And before filing the lawsuit, strongly suggests that <laughs> suggests improper motive. The evidence of bad faith and improper motive becomes undeniably clear when paired with the fact that the plaintiff's counsel violated Rule 11 in a multitude of ways. And just to name a few, uh, circumstances suggest the lawsuit was not about vindicating rights uh, in the wake of alleged election fraud. Instead, it was about uh, ensuring a preferred political candidate remained in the presidential seat despite the decision of the nation's voters to unseat him. Um, she goes on to say uh, another example, Josh Merritt. Okay. Uh, and if you don't remember, that's Spider. Josh Merritt is someone who, whose identity counsel redacted, referring to him only as Spider, uh, and whose counsel identified with a Y, and whose counsel identified in their pleadings and briefs as a former electronic intelligence analyst with the 305th military intelligence and a U.S. military intelligence expert. Yet, even after learning, Merritt never completed any intelligence analyst training program with the 305th military intelligence battalion. Plaintiff's counsel remained silent as to that fact. Um, in, in, motion, in its motion for sanctions, the city emphasizes Merritt's statement had the original paperwork he sent to the plaintiff's counsel did not say that he was an electronic intelligence analyst under the 305th military intelligence. And according to the city, a spokeswoman for the U.S. Army Intelligence Center of Excellence, which includes this battalion, stated that Merrick kept washing out of courses. He's not an intelligence analyst. He, washing out means you failed. Um, when, when I went to new school, we have a 63% attrition rate. We called it, you, you were considered nuke wash. And most of the time you went to, be, on, to become a fire controlman. So you can't make the boat go forward with nuclear stuff, but you can fire nuclear weapons. But Spider worked at the Salvation Army for a summer, didn't he? I think so. <laughs> I, I think so. You read these affidavits. You read the Spider affidavit or the, or the Terpsichore affidavit. And, like, it, it again, I defer to, the, to those who have served on the panel here. Um, but they are they are cosplayers in the true set, right? Like yeah, they're they LARPers. Write, yeah, they they're write LARPers. With they're the... like the fucking guy on I Tonya. Like I'm totally with U.S. intelligence, but no, but you're not. Yes, I am. But no, you're not. I am. Uh, and Kleinhandler argued during the hearing that Merritt's expertise is based on his years and years of experience in cybersecurity as a as a confidential informant working for the government, not Merritt's purported military intelligence training. Clearly, this is dishonest. I, it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad she read it. No, and clearly this is dishonest is in the opinion. It was one of my pink highlights um, be, because the judge is just, this is page 97 now, right? And the judge is like, I, I, I'm writing 110 pages of this and I, I'm getting tired. That, that argument that Howard Kleinhandler made during the sanctions hearing of you got to bring in Spider and hold an evidentiary hearing because he's totally credible. He's been a confidential informant. Again, it's one of those, even if that were true, and by the way, we have zero evidence that it's true, right? Yeah. Um, even if it's true, that's not what his affidavit says. No, it, it, is it put his forth as the, as the analyst under the 305th military yeah. intelligence, yeah. intelligence, whatever. And, and, and Klein, uh, Kleinhandler argued during the hearing that he only first learned about that inconsistency after the case was dismissed on January 14th. Quote, I had no reason to doubt, Kleinhandler explained. That is also dishonest, says the judge. So, and then she explains why. Kleinhender further argued the plaintiff's counsel assertion that Merritt was a U.S. military intelligence expert was not technically false <laughs> because he did spend, from my understanding, Kleinhendler's understanding, 
uh, seven months training with the 305th. The court is unconvinced by this effort to mischaracterize. <laughs> he I, spent seven months and failed out and yeah. washed out. No, this is the Mr. Simpson. Matlock was on in the bar last <laughs> night. The sound wasn't on, but I think I got the gist of it. Yeah. yeah. So that's basically the rest of that. And then, of course, it ends up with whether the court may sanction the plaintiff's counsel pursuant to inherit authority. Yes, of course. Um, and at the end of this entire giant section, she says, is this the one you wanted to read in some? The, the very, where, where she in, tells the clerk, listen up, this is where I want my opinion to go. Okay. This is, uh, in, this is before that. This is page 101. In sum, each of the six matters discussed above individually ev uh, evince bad faith and pr improper purpose. But when viewed collectively, they reveal an even more powerful truth. Once it appeared that their preferred political candidate's grasp on the presidency was slipping away, plaintiff's counsel helped mold the predetermined narrative about election fraud by lodging this federal lawsuit based on evidence that they actively refused to investigate or question with the requisite level of professional skepticism. And this refusal was to ensure that the evidence conformed with the predetermined narrative, a narrative that has had dangerous and violent consequences. Um, she goes on to say, um, plaintiff's counsel at uh, counsel's advance claims that there was also not well-grounded were also not well-grounded in fact as demonstrated by one failure to present any evidentiary support for factual assertions two uh, pre presentment of conjecture and speculation as evidentiary support for factual assertions three failure to inquire into the evidentiary support for factual assertions four failure to inquire into evidentiary support taken from other lawsuits which is what we were talking about earlier and five failure to inquire into ramsland's outlandish and easily debunked math his numbers accordingly sanctions are also warranted pursuant to the court's inherent authority so that was her description on an inherent authority uh, i'm I, always happy when math gets a shout out in the uh, yeah opinion. maths go maths uh find out find which one you want to read that. that's the, the conclusion <laughs> there so as we said in the beginning um so is the uh, as is alpha so is omega she gets she awards the attorney's costs they all have to go to class um, and, and specific ones, too. Oh, yeah. They've got to take six hours of basic pleading and six hours of election law. And, uh, I, <laughs> and, and I would give any amount of money to teach those classes. Now, do they have to take that even if they're totally disbarred and can't be lawyers anymore? Oh, yeah. They've yes. got to file a status report. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and here's they how. They can't just be like, oh, I quit, you know, and not, and not have to No, do they'll it. be held they in contempt. Absolutely. Yeah. And here's how Judge Parker finishes up. She said, it's, it's further ordered that the clerk of the court shall send a copy of this decision to the Michigan Attorney Grievance Commission and, she underscores, the appropriate disciplinary authority for the jurisdiction where each attorney is admitted, referring the matter for investigation and possible suspension or disbarment. And then she lists the names of the nine attorneys whose names should go down in infamy. And, and one of my... The, one of the guys who edits my videos did the wall of shame with all the pictures. And we, <laughs> and we got to Stephanie Lynn. And this is where I'm going to disagree with Andrew. I think it's Yuntilla. Oh. Um, not Juntilla. I had to look that up. And that's, that was my best uh, take on that. And, and she was the only one I couldn't find a picture for online. So if anybody can help me, I'd like to add her to the wall of shame. Because these people, their names should go down in infamy. Where we does she be, practice? We should, Michigan. <laughs> Hopefully nowhere we should read, soon. We should read about them in the future, about how these nine lawyers tried to corrupt 
our courts to undermine a presidential election. They assisted in the in the attempted overthrow of our democracy. And, and I think this gives rise to potential criminal liability. Will will that happen? I don't know, because federal prosecutors are not as strong as they should be. Take it from a former federal prosecutor. We could do an hour, and I recommend a book to you called The Chicken Shit Club, <laughs> all about Enron and its aftermath and how the federal prosecutors don't go hard the way they should, for often for fear of losing. Um, but I hope... I hope Merrick Garland and company are paying some attention to this. Here, here, here. Glenn, Glenn, can we get you back on the show to discuss maybe some other DOJ prosecutions that um, uh, some of us would have hoped uh, we might have heard something about by now? Absolutely. All right. Obstruction of justice. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I got a little obstruction oh. in my throat there. <laughs> yeah. so, anyway, thank you all uh, so much. Thank you, Glenn Kirshner. Uh, please, everybody, check out Justice Matters. It's amazing. Thank you, Andrew Torres. This is our show, Clean Up on All 45. And also, you need to listen to opening arguments. I've been Allison Gill. Um, this has been absolutely incredible. And thank you to our patrons who are here today <laughs> that dropped by to listen to us live. We love you. Uh, if you want to become a patron, is it worth it? Yeah. <laughs> Buck an episode, right? Yeah. Patreon.com slash aisle45pod. Yeah. You know how to do that. And that's the show for today. Uh, I, I don't have anything else. Do you have any final thoughts or anything, Glenn? No, but thanks for having me. I hope to join you guys again soon. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Everybody, I've been Allison and Andrew and Glenn, and this is Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, beating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And, and this, this is, is how, how we win. win.
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.